Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. How are you? I'm well. You, Jeff? I'm fantastic. Wow. Yeah. It's fantastic on this Monday afternoon. It's a Monday and I'm happy. Me too. We have a special guest today. Our guest is Robert Bovarnik. Rob is the managing partner of Bovarnik and Associates, which is a Philadelphia-based business law firm. They represent businesses and their principals focused on all aspects of business, including organization, structure, contracts, buying and selling businesses, workouts, bankruptcy, and all types of business litigation. In addition to his practice, Rob has been a contributor with Forbes.com. He does a column called Good Counsel, and he writes on small business and bankruptcy issues, including a 16-part series called Behind the Curtain, Chapter 11 from the Inside. He was also previously a legal analyst on the Fox Business Network during the Chrysler and General Motors bankruptcy cases. He's written a political column for the Pennsylvania Law Weekly called Politically Right. And he was the host of the Billable Hour radio show. And he taught the Advanced Bankruptcy Seminar at Rutgers University Law School in Camden. He has an AV rating from Martindale Hubble. And he's been selected 10 times as a super lawyer in Pennsylvania. And he's also been named one of the preeminent lawyers in America by LexisNexis. Welcome, Rob. Gentlemen, it's great to be here. Good to have you. Do we cover your bio accurately? did a great job. Now, Rob, are you from Philadelphia originally? Why don't you tell us a little bit of your background? So actually, born in Boston, and then at the age of two, moved to Seattle. My father took a job with Boeing. So I lived in Seattle for all of my growing up life and went to the University of Washington for undergrad. And then for law school, went to the University of Miami and graduated UM and was practicing down there doing business litigation, met my wife, who is originally from Philadelphia. She was at UM for undergrad and MBA. And after we got married, decided that we didn't want to stay in Miami. So decided to move back to where she's originally from, which is Philadelphia. So I moved up here in the 80s and have been up here ever since. You're one of the rare people who goes to school in Miami and then actually leaves. That is true. But I've kept a lot of friends down there. As recently as last week, I reached out to one of my law school friends, one of my Florida clients had a need. So it is nice to be able to stay in touch with everybody. You've really spanned the country going from East Coast to Seattle, going to school in Seattle, and then coming down to Miami, and then obviously making your way up to Philly. Tell us a little bit about your practice and what the focus is. When I was in Miami, I was primarily a business litigator. We did some bankruptcy work representing trustees, but I would say it was mainly litigation. And then I moved up to Philadelphia and I worked for a 20-lawyer boutique bankruptcy law firm where we represented companies in financial distress, either in workouts or Chapter 11, and also represented creditor committees. And I did that for nine years. I left there and had a short stint with a mid-sized firm where I was head of the creditor's rights practice. I then went to one of the larger firms in Philadelphia where I was vice chair of the bankruptcy practice group, stayed there for a while, and then decided to try it on my own. 
I'm entrepreneurial at heart. And I said, I think I can build a better mousetrap. And so I formed my own firm. And it's been an interesting ride for all of those years doing corporate transactional work and business bankruptcy and the business litigation. When did you form your own firm? 2002. So you just celebrated 20 years. That is correct. Wow, congratulations. congratulations man. Yeah. That's quite Thank you. Thank you. I'm always interested in uh, transition. So when you were moving from South Florida up to Philadelphia, you had already been practicing nine or 10 years. Is that right? Actually, no. I graduated in 83 from UM and then got married in 85 and moved up here in 86. I was a very young lawyer when we moved to Philadelphia. Okay. But you had to take another bar after three years. Right. And I will say taking the Pennsylvania bar was a lot easier than the Florida bar, not because the exam was any easier, but because you learn how to do the test. Like anything else, when you learn what it is that they're looking for, it is much easier to figure out how to study for it and much easier to take it. And I will say one other thing. When I took the bar in Florida, I don't know how it was for the two of you, but at that time, the bar exam was only given in one location. And when I took the bar in Florida, it was in the Orlando Convention Center And there were, I think, about 3,500 people on the floor of the Orlando Convention Center. So that was a little bit intimidating, but it worked out pretty well. Yeah, for me, it was Tampa. Tampa, yeah. Yeah. I took it in Tampa as well. But I think it was a convention center type setting in Tampa as well. Now that I think about it, I think that you're right. I think it was probably Tampa. And all these years, I've always told people it was Orlando. But the point is that it was only given one location as opposed to Pennsylvania, where it's given all over the place. So that was very different. Yeah. We like to make things difficult in Florida. Or easier. One of those. I mean, you just one location, right? (laughs) If you're in that location, it's much (laughs) easier. Okay. If you're not, it's a little harder. Fair enough. Anyways, but yeah, I was thinking that taking the bar, that's what I was going to ask you after 10 years, but you just said it even after three years, two, three years, it's easier. I would suspect that it's not even learning the test, but just after you practice a couple of years, I think you really understand the law a lot differently than you did when you were in law school. There's no question about that. They don't necessarily teach you that in law school, but you out there in practice and you learn what it's all about. So there's no question that it made a huge difference. Right. It's kind of like I always question the wisdom of teaching legal procedure as a first year class because you're learning the procedure for a construct that you don't really understand to begin with. So I think if you learned it later in your career, it would make a little more sense. That's very true. But nobody's now, ever asked. I think there's a lot to be said for the old apprenticeship method that they had before any of us were practicing. Right. Where you work with a practicing lawyer before starting your own practice. Right. They should bring that back. I support it. A hundred percent. They should bring that back again. I don't know that they ever will for various reasons, but I think that would really go a long way to helping young lawyers. And frankly, it would help the employers too, the firms and government agencies. Well, yeah, I think it would be a great vehicle for pro bono representation for a lot of people who need it. Partner up with a practicing lawyer or government service and other types of service jobs. If that was a mandatory requirement, do we know if any state has that? I don't know. The only thing I know that in Delaware, no matter if you're a first year or a 20th year, in order to get admitted in Delaware, you have to do a lot of things, including working with an experienced lawyer. And you have to do things like Go to a deposition. Even if you've taken a thousand depositions, I think you're still required to attend a deposition with a Delaware lawyer. And the idea obviously being learn about Delaware practice. Well, that's a good start for sure. 
I mean, to me, it's very similar to doctors, right? Doctors do their internships, their rotations before they can become a full-fledged doctor. I'm not suggesting that lawyers need that many years, but maybe one year as an apprenticeship, man, I think on-the-job training is so valuable. Without a doubt, the best way to learn. So tell us, Rob, about your column for Forbes. Do you still write that column now? I'm not writing for them right now. I actually had two stints with Forbes. The first time was probably about, I'd have to go back and look, maybe 10 years or so ago. I don't even remember how I hooked up with a fellow by the name of Brett Nelson, who was my editor. And I will tell you, my concern with writing for Forbes and Forbes.com with an editor was, as both of you know, as lawyers, you change one word in a brief or, or something, and it could change the whole meeting. So I'd said that to Brett, that that was my concern. And he was really good about it. As it turns out, there were not a lot of changes that he would make in my calls. And as I'd indicated, or you indicated before, my swim lanes, and that's what they referred to it as for small business and bankruptcy. And so I would be writing topics that were relating to small business and bankruptcy. And so I continued to do that until Brett left the publication. And he had a number of columnists and nobody picked up his columnist. So that sort of went away. And then during the pandemic, when the pandemic first happened, I reached out to Brett and I said, gee, I think I'd like to get back with Forbes. And so he put me in touch with the then people that I needed to speak with. And I went through the vetting process. And so I started writing for Forbes.com and did that for quite a while. And one of the challenges, I could never write something that was timely. If a case came down from the Supreme Court or from Florida or Pennsylvania, it would be very difficult to spend the time to write something on it so that it could be published in a timely fashion. So I would write things that would be a little more what I would refer to as timeless. And one of the things that Forbes wanted you to do was to have each column be a standalone and they would occasionally let you do something that would be a two-parter. And I thought that would make a lot of sense is to write something that would be a deep dive into the chapter 11 process. My thought process was when a potential chapter 11 business owner wants to think about bankruptcy, what kind of resources do they have online? They can go on there and they can see some three paragraph column that somebody has written, or they can read some law review article that most business owners can't understand. So what I proposed to Forbes, and they were more than happy to let me do that, was to do a lengthy series. It turned out to be 16 parts. I referred to it as Behind the Curtain, Chapter 11 from the Inside. And I worked with one of my clients and changed all the names, obviously, but went through every major part of the bankruptcy process from the very beginning with the client's thought process to why do I need to file the interview process from filing the petition and every major aspect in a bankruptcy, whether it was the 341 meeting, executive contracts, the plan process, preference actions, and so forth. And so that worked out well. I enjoyed doing that a lot. And I discussed that with a lot of clients if they have a need to really understand, because as both of you know, the challenge with chapter 11, it can be very time consuming and very invasive. And I think clients need to know that before they make the decision to go in what they're really in for. 
Sure. And if it's a business where your contact is the owner, then there's an obvious impact on them of filing. But also when they're not owners, I think a lot of individuals involved in the process are not explained. They don't receive a great explanation about how it's going to impact them personally, owners and non-owners, and how it's going to impact their family members, how it's going to impact their employees, how it's going to impact their creditors. The impact can be so significant and so far reaching that we sometimes forget the human element. You know, a lot of bankruptcy lawyers, I think, are looking at just the numbers and the data and recognizing that, okay, we restructure this debt or that debt and we can solve this problem. But there's also a human element. So sounds like you were writing about that too. There's no question. And one of the things that I learned is that I think it is really important before the decision is made to file to have a really good idea as to the potential exit strategy. Because if you don't have a good idea as to the exit strategy and know whether it has a good likelihood of succeeding, the likelihood is greater that the process will fail. Because I think most small business cases outside of the subchapter five area, they don't seem to be particularly successful. Again, because it's invasive, it's very expensive, it's very time consuming. And of course, there are always going to be issues that come up that were unanticipated before the filing. To me, it seems like more clients on the debtor side come in that obviously more familiar with bankruptcy and the process than they used to be 10, 20 years ago. What are some of the issues that you're seeing today or that you anticipate seeing in potentially the next sort of round of more filings? Well, it was so interesting, but I think most of us that do a fair amount of bankruptcy work assumed that once the pandemic hit because of all the challenges, that there would be so many filings and that just didn't seem to be the case, whether it was the PPP funding or issues with respect to landlords and what they could and couldn't do. So generally speaking, there weren't a lot of filings and those now seem to be starting to become more prevalent, getting calls from folks and whether it's employee issues or lease issues or a lot of issues with the banks who are starting to now call loans. I think what's interesting is most lenders are still prepared to work with their borrowers because I think one of the good things is, and I'll be interested to hear the perspective that the two of you have, I think most lenders recognize that bankruptcy is generally not a win-win for all parties. Parties are better off seeing if they can work something done outside of an actual filing so that everybody can do the best they can and try to move forward. I agree with that. It seems to us anyway that not just the potential clients that come in, they're a little more educated in the bankruptcy process, but the lenders and other creditors that do this a lot, they're more sophisticated. It seems like they've been through the process or they're more familiar and are willing to at least sit down and talk about potential outcomes, potential resolution to try to avoid a bankruptcy because they've already sort of strategized the potential outcomes and they kind of know what to expect, the costs associated with it, what may or may not happen in a bankruptcy, and they can kind of frame that out and everyone may be on the same page. That doesn't always work out and people have to file, but it seems to me that with the greater education, greater knowledge comes perhaps the ability to kind of work through some issues to avoid a filing or to walk into court together hand in hand with, let's say, a prepack. I agree with that. And that's always our approach. Insolvency, really any type of 
court premised process so that is litigation or you know, bankruptcy. If anytime we can keep our clients out of court, we try to do that. We had recently a client a few months ago, a client with a landlord tenant issue. It was a new relationship and they had a dispute and we were going to court. And the conversation was, do you want this relationship to be defined by a court? by a judge? Or do you guys want to work it out yourselves and decide? And we helped frame the issues and got to a resolution. But I think a lot of people underestimate the impact of having their fate decided by a judge who may or may not see things the way they see them. I think that's absolutely true. You're totally right. There are no guarantees. So even though you may be right, the client may be right, there's no guarantee that the judge will agree. One of the other things that I've always believed is if you look at my LinkedIn page, for example, it says, looking at legal issues through the eyes of a business owner, don't overlawyer the deal. One of the things that I learned, and actually this goes back to my days back in Florida, where in representing small to mid-sized businesses, I learned a valuable lesson that just because a lawyer can do something doesn't mean a lawyer should do something. Mm. I mean, it's really important to look at what's important to the client. And most clients, particularly smaller business owners, they are interested in doing the important matters and they're going to be willing to take some risk on things that are maybe less likely to happen just so they can do what I always think is the most important thing is to get them back doing what they do best, which is running their business profitably. Yeah, I mean, that's an outcome-driven approach where you're trying to determine rather than what's the next step, oftentimes the next step is file a lawsuit. You're looking 10 steps ahead and saying, all right, what's the outcome that you're looking for? If it's to end this dispute, then embarking on lengthy, costly, distracting litigation may or may not be the best way to get there. I liked your comment also about don't over-lawyer the deal. Because I think a lot of lawyers forget, even deal lawyers, forget that Their job is to make the deal happen, not to make the deal not happen. And sometimes they lose sight of that. That's totally right. Is you have to look at what's in the best interest of your client. And one of the stories that I tell people is where I first learned this lesson personally was when my wife and I were looking for our first house years ago. And I took the Pennsylvania standard real estate contract, which was whatever it was, three pages long. And as a young lawyer, I looked and I said, you know, I can write a better contract. And in fact, I did write a better contract. I took the three-page contract, I turned it into a 10-page contract. It was a thing of beauty. And so we would go and we would look at a house and we'd be ready to put in an offer. And I would take my beautiful 10-page contract and I would give it to the realtor and absolute crickets. Nothing ever happened. So one day I'm in my office and one of the partners in the firm comes in. He must've heard me yelling at the realtor, whatever it was. And he said, Rob, do yourself a favor. You know what's important and what's not important. Change the things in the contract that are important. Don't worry about the rest. So I took the Pennsylvania standard real estate contract, made a handful of changes. And even though there were other things I was uncomfortable with, I said, I'm not going to worry about it put in the offer and we got an acceptance on our offer for the price that we put in for. So that was a valuable lesson to learn on that day. And I've always remembered that. So you made an offer and they accepted it. It means you offered too much. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely right. I often think, did I leave money on the table? Yeah, maybe, but it worked out fine. 
you can't worry about those things. The fact is we wanted the house, we got the house and it worked out fine. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. You won because you got the house that you wanted. Your firm now, is it just you or do you have other attorneys that work with you? So right now it's just me. I've gone through over the years, I've had a number of attorneys, both contract lawyers, associates of counsel. And then like with so many people during COVID, when work was drying up, I scaled back. And so now I'm starting to build up again. What's interesting, I always found one of the big challenges was the first time that I hired an assistant, that was a little scary because you're spending a good amount of money and you're going to need to keep that person busy. Well, that was nothing like the first time I hired an attorney because obviously you need to keep that person busy and so forth. But one of the things that I've always liked is to use contract lawyers. And particularly if you're using the same lawyer or lawyers, you get used to their work, you get used to their time frame, and so forth. So that is something that I've liked. And so that's where we're heading back in that direction. You might have anticipated my next question, which was about for lawyers who are out there in law firms who are thinking about starting their own practice, when is the right time to hire? And do you have any advice for those people? What a wonderful question. It's one of those things. There's no one right answer. One thing that people have to keep in mind is if you bring somebody on to do, whether it's younger associate work, it frees up your time to go out there and market and build up your practice even more. So it really boils down to, you're going to have to make a leap of faith because there are no guarantees. Unless all of a sudden some client says, I want you to be my lawyer and I'm going to give you a tremendous amount of money each month. And now I need you to staff that up. That's unlikely to happen. So you really just have to sit there and be confident in your ability to build your practice because of the relationships that you have built over the years. I think that's a good approach. And I also think you mentioned this, that you were a little hesitant to hire your first hire. And I remember that reluctance as well. My advice is always think about what tasks you would give that person today. And then think about if you had more time available to you, what could you do with that time? Because that's really what hiring someone is about, is freeing you up to do you know, higher value tasks. I totally agree. And it's also interesting, back years ago, obviously there were things that assistance needed to do, whether it was uh, legal assistance or staff. But now with technology as it is, there's so much that we can do far more efficiently. And there was a time years ago, I would keep two secretaries busy. And now, obviously, with everything that you can do on the computer, including all the filing, so much of that is done by we as lawyers, as opposed to our assistants. Exactly. To me, it's better to have a paralegal or another attorney doing secretarial. I really don't love that term, but secretarial type work rather than you do it. Absolutely. Because once again, they can do that you're still going to need to do some level of review. But as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, it provides you with the opportunity to free up your time to do that which you can do best. It's not dissimilar to when I'm speaking with a client and they're talking about retaining me or retaining a big firm. And my view has always been, you go to the large firms for that which only the large firms can do. There are certain things that I do, that you do, that both of you do, but there's a lot of things that we don't do and really are better geared to the larger institutional firms. But other than that, my view has always been, 
again, it's a personal decision. You've got to be comfortable with the attorney that you're hiring, whether it's in a small firm, a mid-sized firm, a large firm, but recognize the economics of it. If you go to a larger firm, you're going to be paying a higher hourly rate, or alternatively, if you're paying a lower hourly rate, you're paying for the learning curve of a young lawyer. And so the question that the client needs to ask themselves is, what's the most important thing for them? Exactly. And so you said you've had employees, you've been up and down with the employees, but I think that's really the right approach. It sounds like you got to be, when you're a small business owner, a small law firm owner, you have to be agile, willing to grow and shrink as needed. Absolutely. I will say that personnel decisions are probably the most difficult one. And I'm sure that the two of you have had to let people go. And even if that may be justified for whatever reason, it's still a very difficult thing to do because these are people. They oftentimes have families and you need to take that into account. But at the end of the day, each of us has a business and we have our responsibilities, whether it's to our families, to our clients, to the other people we're working with. Yeah, it's never easy when you're dealing with those situations. But I think, as we always like to say, you know, leaders make hard decisions. But those are hard decisions when you're dealing with people and families. And we always talk about here, when we started this place, there was obviously less people, less lawyers. We now have people who have been here for a long time and you watch them grow their families, you watch them grow their footprint, and you feel a real sense of ownership and responsibility there as a leader, as an owner, in order to make sure everybody is humming in the right direction and making sure that the business is successful and that you don't have to make those decisions unless, obviously, there's a specific reason. I'm not sure if you intended to do this, but you raise a really interesting point, and that's personality. The personality of the firm, because we all know a lot of lawyers out there, some are really nice people, some are not so nice people, and presumably you're going to want your firm to have a particular personality, and that's really important because not every client is going to want to retain you. And I think that's something to recognize. And that's fine. The client needs to go to the right lawyer. And I've had situations where I've had clients want a type of lawyer that would be better served by somebody else other than me. And again, my view is always that I want them to have the best attorney for them. Hopefully it's me, but oftentimes it's going to be somebody else for whatever reason. I agree with that. I mean, not every client and lawyer belong together. Usually when you get into a case and you sort of start seeing the personalities, lawyers and clients tend to find each other. Their personalities and their mindset line up usually. It's important that the relationship, both sides have to be comfortable with each other because especially in restructuring or complex business litigation, you're going to be spending a lot of time together. There's a certain amount of trust that is necessary and implicit in the relationship. And if a client's not comfortable at the beginning, it's not going to work out. If either side's not comfortable. Absolutely right. We're getting close to time, but I want to bring you back because I want to know about this 16-part series about Chapter 11. I was hopeful that maybe you could make it an 11-part series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I felt the need to see that staring at me. I appreciate that. And I probably would have tried to do that, but there were just so (laughs) many things to do. And I don't have it handy. Otherwise, I'd go through it. But it's interesting where that came from in part was When we taught the advanced bankruptcy seminar in Rutgers, we did it a slightly different way. Interestingly, so that started as a two-credit course, but because there was so much involved, it became a three-credit course. But what we did was we 
treated it as a Chapter 11 case. And each class session was a different significant aspect of a Chapter 11 case. And the students each took a different role. You had some students that were the debtor, some of the secured creditor, whatever the case may be. And so they would go in and they would have to prepare now the appropriate motions. And the final exam was not an exam in the traditional sense, but it was a confirmation hearing. Mm -hmm. And it was in court. And one of the judges in Camden would sit there and we'd be in the judge's courtroom and we'd have an actual confirmation hearing. And that was the final exam. That's great. I want to take that class. Sounds like fun. Well, Rob, we're coming to the end. A little message for the listeners. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, share the show with your friends and family, and please leave a review. And a reminder that subscribing to the show and leaving reviews will actually help others find the show, and it will help us grow, devote more time, and produce better content for you. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Nelson. Thanks, Rob, for coming by. I appreciate the conversation. This is great. Nelson, as always, thank you. And Jeff? Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you allowing me to participate. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.